the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today is the day we focus, at least in part, on the lighter side of the news, and we will do just that. We're also going to share with you our interview of the week with Jonathan Dodson, our good crisis, overcoming moral chaos with the Beatitudes. So all of that's coming up. We'll also bring you the headline news. In fact, we'll start with that right now. Well, President Trump speaking at the White House coronavirus briefing on Thursday unloaded on Democrats who have created a new House committee with subpoena authority to investigate the federal response to the coronavirus pandemic. We've seen Americans unite with incredible selflessness and compassion, the president began. I want to remind everyone here in our nation's capital, especially in Congress, that this is not the time for politics, endless partisan investigations. Here we go again. They've already done extraordinary damage to our country in recent years, end quote. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced the committee's creation on Thursday. It's witch hunt after witch hunt after witch hunt, the president continued. And in the end, it's people doing the witch hunt who are losing. And they've been losing by a lot. And it's not any time for witch hunts, end quote. It's time to get this enemy defeated. Conducting these partisan investigations during a pandemic is a really bad waste of uh, vital resources, time, attention, the president went on to say, and we want to fight for American lives, not waste time and build up my poll numbers, because that's all they're doing, because everyone knows it's ridiculous. Well, also during the uh, news briefing on Thursday, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, he announced that the first round of stimulus checks will be directly deposited into Americans' bank accounts in the next two weeks. And the president revealed that he had again tested negative for the coronavirus. Well, the head of Florida's Division of Emergency Management has accused U.S. mask uh, manufacturer 3M of shipping the critical protective equipment to foreign countries who outbid U.S. buyers, even as hospitals and state officials desperately scrambled to secure N95 protective masks for healthcare workers on the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic. Jared Muskowski told the Tucker Carlson Tonight program on Thursday that he discovered that 3M distributors were prioritizing foreign buyers after they refused to sell him the essential equipment. For the last several weeks, we've had a boiler room chasing down 3M authorized distributors and brokers representing that they sell the N95 masks only get to warehouses that are completely empty. Uh, Moskowitz said we are being told that our shipments are on cargo planes and the flights don't even appear. We're chasing ghosts. I just decided to turn up the heat and tell people what's actually happening on the N95 mask space. Well, Mouskowitz, he said, uh, he claimed rather to have reached out to many 3M authorized distributors in the United States to confirm his suspicions and said he was shocked to find American companies quietly partnering with the foreign buyers at a time of national crisis. Well, the commanding officer of the aircraft carrier USS Theodore Roosevelt, now docked in Guam, was relieved of duty at my direction, says Acting Navy Secretary Thomas Maudley yesterday. 
Navy Captain Brett Crozier, the carrier's commander, was sacked after being accused of linking, uh, leaking rather a letter to the media outside the chain of command, pleading for help after more than 100 sailors aboard the vessel tested positive for the coronavirus, with nearly 100 more believed to be infected. This decision is not one of retribution, Modley said, adding, I did not come to the decision lightly. I have no doubt in my mind Crozier did what he thought was in the best interest of the safety and well-being of his crew. He uh, said, unfortunately, he did the opposite. More doctors are seeing hope for the hydroxychloroquine as a treatment for the coronavirus. From one story in the Washington Times, an international poll of more than 6,000 doctors released on Thursday found that the um, anti-malarial drug of hydroxychloroquine was the most highly rated treatment for the novel coronavirus. It's not a cure, but it does relieve some of the symptoms. Another story notes that after repeatedly mocking President Trump for suggesting on March the 19th that the drug could be an effective treatment for coronavirus, media organizations have begun acknowledging that the drug now approved for emergency use to treat coronavirus by the Food and Drug Administration may be useful after all. And the president is looking at paying hospitals directly for treating uninsured coronavirus patients. Uh, the Washington Examiner reports that we are going to try to get them a cash payment because just opening it up doesn't help as much. The president said during the White House press briefing, Vice President Mike Pence said the administration was considering directing some of the $100 billion allocated to hospitals as part of the economic recovery package recently signed by the president to pay hospitals for any coronavirus treatment for people without insurance. And from New York Governor Andrew Cuomo on Anderson Cooper, he said today the president was very helpful, actually converting our Javits Center, which has 2,500 beds, into a COVID facility. I called him this morning. He got it done by the afternoon. And the dispatch, or rather political, reports that the U.S. is flying medical equipment in on cargo planes, and AEI President Fellow Andy Smarrick he looks at the difficulty, uh, uh, the difficult trade-off of temporarily allowing the federal government more power and what that might mean long-term. And finally, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said those personal checks will go out to Americans within two weeks. Uh, Mr. Crenshaw is ripping uh, Vice President Biden for constant criticism of Trump during the uh, uh, corona uh, virus. He tweeted, remember when you were vice president and lived through H1N1 and Ebola? You could have added more PP&E to national stockpiles, right? But you didn't. See how easy it is to finger point and play the bad faith blame game. Everyone is trying to solve this. These type of comments add nothing. Biden gave China a pass as he continued his criticism of President Trump. It is, after all, (laughs) an election year. And Democrats have begun investigating the president for the handling of the coronavirus. This seething anti-Trump opinion piece in the Washington Post examines um, uh, Adam Schiff, who is at it again. And a reporter is seeking uh, dirt on Mike Lindell of MyPillow. Among other things, Adam Klasfeld, he asked Twitter users, are you a consumer who sued MyPillow for false advertising? The reaction to Mike Lindell and Samaritan's Purse reveals an open bigotry against Christians. And Franklin Graham, he tweeted pictures of thank you notes that kids hung around their emergency field hospital in Central, Hosp- in, uh, Central Park. rather. From Victor Davis Hansen, uh, making the point that America is turning a corner, he says, in typically American fashion, as we have uh, seen in crises from Pearl Harbor to 9-11, after initial shock and unpreparedness, the U.S. economic and scientific juggernaut is kicking into action. Already, the U.S. is transitioning from a long, 
disastrous reliance on Chinese medical supplies and pharmaceuticals. In ad hoc fashion, companies are gearing up massive production of masks, ventilators, and key antiviral supplies. Peggy Noonan on the uh, resiliency of New Yorkers says no one asks, not one person has asked, why us? We think, why not us? Of course, us. The city of the skyscrapers draws the lightning. There are 8.6 million of us. We are compact, draw all the people of the world and travel packed close in underground tubes. Of course, we got sick here first. The crisis are the uh, price we pay for the privilege of living in the most exciting little landmass on the face of the earth. And a group is suing Fox News, claiming that they gave false information on the coronavirus. If this worked, imagine the nightmare coming for MSNBC and CNN. We'll see where this goes. And San Francisco has reversed its ban on single-use plastic bags. Turns out coronavirus is a big issue, that a bigger issue than politically correct environmentalism, because these reusable bags can harbor the virus. And the federal and state courts are back open at a greatly scaled down level, we're told. Andrew McCarthy explained what that means for different types of cases. And Virginia's store owner outraged that employee uh, was arrested for shooting an intruder uh, from the story. Hazmi Asbashira, who's 33, was temporarily staying at the Arlington Smoke Shop, where he also works, when three masked intruders broke in at about 5 a.m. to steal cash and merchandise, according to the Arlington County Police. He grabbed a gun the owner bought to protect the store from thieves amid the coronavirus pandemic and shot at the intruders. Well, apparently the employee was arrested for shooting at the intruders. Such is the time that we're in. Well, on this day in history, 1996, the Unabomber Theodore Kaczynski was arrested at his remote Montana cabin for a series of bombs that killed three Americans and injured 24 more over a 17-year period. On this day in history, 1816, the legendary Pony Express begins carrying mail between St. Joseph, Missouri and Sacramento, California. 1944, the U.S. Supreme Court in Smith v. Allwright strikes down a Democratic Party of Texas rule that allows only white voters to participate in the Democratic primaries. 1948, President Harry S. Truman, Truman rather, signs the Marshall Plan, which is designed to help European allies rebuild after World War II and resist communism. 1965, the United States launches the SNAP-10A nuclear power system into Earth orbit. It's the first nuclear reactor sent into space. And on 1968, on this day, Martin Luther King Jr. delivers what turned out to be his final speech, telling a rally of striking sanitation workers in Memphis, Texas, that I've been to the mountaintop and seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. 1968, North Vietnam rather, agrees to meet with U.S. representatives to set up the preliminary peace talks that would lead ultimately to the end of the war. 74, deadly tornadoes in 1974 began hitting wide parts of the South and Midwest before jumping across the border into Canada. More than 300 fatalities result from what would become known as the super outbreak. In 1996, an Air Force jetliner carrying Commerce Secretary Ron Brown and American business executives crash in Croatia, killing all 35 people aboard. And finally, in 2003, Atlantic Magazine editor Michael Kelly, 46, becomes the first American journalist to be killed while covering the Iraq War. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. We'll update you on headlines at the top of the next hour, so stay with us. We'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. And for these next few segments, we're going to focus on the lighter side of the news, which means James Blend is going to join me. How you doing, James? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I, I think that uh, I, I'm, I'm really not going nuts being here, and you know, for two weeks, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm excited. I'm, I'm doing great. I'm happy. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm in great shape. Are you on some kind of medication? No, because you're scaring me. No, I, I feel like maybe I need to be though. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in keeping our promise, I wanted to start out with some lighter news. A 70-year-old who was celebrating his birthday had a little different birthday party than expected, which just demonstrates once again how creative people can be. Not even social distancing was going to keep people from celebrating this birthday in Massachusetts. The Quincy Police Department shared a video on Sunday of a birthday parade held for Christopher Ellie, who turned 70. The party may have been a little different than planned, but the love of your family and friends remains the same, Quincy Police tweeted. In the video that was released by them, uh, Ellie, the birthday boy of 70, can be seen standing on his front porch waving as a special parade featuring a police car, a fire engine, and his family and friends drive past his home. Well, as the vehicles drive past, drivers honked and waved at Ellie, uh, who thanked everyone. Those who drove by even had balloons uh, uh, present as they uh, gave their well wishes. As the coronavirus pandemic has caused, you know, health officials to advise people against large gatherings, close contact and so on. uh, Many have turned to drive by birthday parties over the past several weeks and other occasions. We had a drive by in my family last weekend. It was just a visit. As of Monday morning, Massachusetts has forty nine hundred fifty five positive covid-19 cases, 48 deaths, according to a tally by John Hopkins University. So people still wanted to celebrate and did so in style with a drive by. I love it. Absolutely love it. And then there's this guy, an Ohio man unable to visit his mother's nursing home due to the virus lockdown, used a tree trimming bucket truck to visit her third floor window. Charlie Adams, owner of Adams Tree Preservation in Youngstown, said he wanted to visit his mother, who's 80, at Windsor Estate Assisted Living in New Middletown. But the facility is on lockdown due to, of course, COVID-19. With no visiting allowed uh, inside and no residents allowed to leave, He said he received permission from the home to uh, bring his tree trimming bucket truck to the building and lift himself up to his mother's third floor window. Oh, that is just the sweetest thing. I pulled up the truck, set up the bucket, and I called her on the phone. And I said, Mom, look outside. Look outside your window right now. And there I was. Well, photos of the visit were posted on Facebook by um, Adam's uncle, and the pictures quickly spread. Now, with all the attention, she's getting lots of calls from family and friends from all over the country. So it's been great, which uh, perhaps is a good reminder for us to um, make calls to people who might otherwise be completely isolated. I have heard from friends that um, I haven't uh, had FaceTime or um, conversation with for years, just call, just calling or texting or whatever to check in. And it's been such a blessing. I know your dad is uh, in a facility right now and he's yes. on lockdown. You can't visit him. That is so difficult. Now, he can't take phone calls, uh, but it's just a very difficult challenge uh, to know that he's in a vulnerable uh, state and this whole thing is going on. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things that is kind of a helpless feeling because um, yeah. the uh, we were actually right before this whole thing blew up. Uh, we uh, we had a little bit of a, a bad cold go through the household and uh, 
which we still joke was uh, you know corona before it was cool uh but um <laughs> the um the so we actually have not been able to see my dad since it was the beginning of president's day weekend Mm. And mm. you know he's he's on hospice. Um, yeah. So I mean, I was, in fact I was talking to the social worker with his hospice this morning, and I said that's kind of my biggest thing right now is you know even though he doesn't know who I am anymore and you know does, isn't that interactive, you know what little time we have left with him is being you know drained away. Yeah, um, and yeah. so you know he's not really responsive to talk on the phone. Um, it's not like one of these nifty places where you could see in the window. Yeah. Um, so it's, um, mm. it, it's one of those, it's one of those where it's a little frustrating, but you know, we yeah. do try We know he's being taken very well care of. Um, and, uh, you know, so far, God willing, uh, his, uh, his facility is free of this stuff. So that's good too. Yeah. Well, I'm so sorry. And if you think of it, ladies and gentlemen, would you add to your lengthening list of things and people to pray for? James' dad. They share the same name. So, although I think he uh, is referred to as Jimmy quite often, um, hey just now, lift him up in prayer. I like to call you Jimmy because I know it bugs you, but that's well, I prob- you know, I, if it weren't for uh, if it weren't for him, uh, I probably would go by Jim. But uh, you know, he had it first, so yeah, I'm a James. Yeah. All right, James, also known as Jimmy. Um, Bob Whiten will probably never forget his 112th birthday. He's from uh, Hampshire in South England. He hit the milestone on Sunday, but he didn't spend it partying with friends and loved ones like millions of people. He was in isolation because of yeah the coronavirus pandemic. Still, the assisted living facility where he uh, is a resident did arrange to have happy birthday sung to him from a safe distance while he listened on his balcony. He also got a memorable present, a plaque from Guinness uh, World Records, honoring him as the current holder of the title, World's Oldest Living Male. He was awarded the record uh, back in February um, uh, when uh, the previous recipient passed away, um, the previous oldest living male. He was 112 years and 355 days. Uh, Waiton had uh, mixed feelings about the honor. I can't say I was pleased to hear the previous holder had died, but I am very pleased that I've been able to live so long and make so many friends, he said. And although he lived through the, ni- the 1918-1920 flu pandemic and two world wars, nothing in his 11-plus decades prepared him for life in COVID-19 era, he said. It's bizarre. I've never experienced anything like coronavirus before, he uh, told the paper. I'm a bit frustrated, but then again, I've been in situations where we just had to accept what was happening. Two world wars, the Flu pandemic, 1918 to 1920, the Depression, he's still still hanging on. Meanwhile, a young boy from London decided to go for a, well, a daring new hairstyle based off something he saw on television. Unfortunately, what the kid saw was an older, balding man. So his brother helped him to shave the entire top of his head. So he just has, you know, that um, fringe of hair around the border. And it's uh, quite, well, attractive. Kevin Moore said that he was at home with his two children, ages five and seven, when he heard them uh, giggling hysterically. Well, deciding to investigate, Dad said he uh, soon learned his sons had found a pair of his clippers and decided to shave a bald spot on the five-year-old's head. I've left my clippers on charge upstairs. 
Uh, and the boys obviously found them, he said. They both came down and they were laughing so much. I looked over and saw this massive bald patch, which literally covered the entire top of his uh, son's head, the five-year-old. Family was dealing with the coronavirus lockdown at the time. Kevin said he was left with his sons after his wife went to work and that George, the five-year-old, was begging him to make him look like an old man. Well, dad didn't comply, so <laughs> he did, did it himself. Dad says he didn't know what the kid meant, but you've been framed was on the television at the time. And he pointed to an elderly gentleman uh, with um, thinning hair on top and said he wanted that. I found it so funny, but that's what he wanted. So uh, I did the rest of his head for him and the clippers uh, like he wanted. And the result was brilliant. He continued. Neither of us can stop laughing. And we FaceTimed his mom at work. And she was just crying with laughter on the phone. Now, I'm not suggesting this is necessarily the kind of thing you want to encourage your kids to do, but it was pretty funny. And they, uh, of course, posted images of the five-year-old who was uh, balding on the top. <laughs> well, you know, at least uh, some of us put that off a few years. Yeah, this kid wanted to get it over with, I guess. Well, a doctor is praising a Minnesota state trooper who stopped her for speeding. Yeah, she was speeding, but gave her an N95 mask instead of a ticket. Uh, Dr. Sharash, let me see if I can get this, Ashraf Janjui, she thanked State Trooper Brian Schwartz for his act of kindness amid the coronavirus pandemic in a Facebook post. Dr. Janjui, a cardiologist, worked on temporary assignment in the area, explained she was pulled over after driving over the speed limit. The trooper told her it was irresponsible for her to be speeding because it would take up resources if she got into an accident and she would not be able to help her patients. She waited to be slapped with a ticket, but instead he let her off with a warning, plus five medical masks. They came from a supply the state had uh, given to him for his own protection, according to Janjui. I burst into tears, she said, and though it may just have uh, been of a cold wind, I think he teared up a little as well before wishing him, uh, mis- wishing her well and walking away. Ah, these acts of kindness give us uh, a little hope uh, for mankind, at least on that level. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue to wind our way through some of the lighter side of the news and some of it just warms your heart. James Blend is also joining me, but we'll both be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Friday edition of The Georgine Rice Show. Later in our second hour, we'll share with you the interview of the week with Jonathan Dodson, our good crisis, overcoming moral chaos with the Beatitudes. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. We'll also start out the second hour with a refresh of the day's headlines. Well, once a prom queen, always a prom queen. One thoughtful family in Texas wanted to ensure that their high schooler would still get a chance to enjoy prom this year, even though the annual dance had been canceled. Well, we all know why. So in lieu of the big event, her folks threw a prom on the porch bash, and the senior student was even crowned queen of the night. Wow. Like many other school events, Highland High School called off their highly anticipated big dance, which had been scheduled for the 28th of March due to the COVID-19 outbreak. Well, determined to make the night special for senior student Grayson, the Chapman family said uh, Sweetwater, I should say from Sweetwater, hosted a prom on the porch party that evening. Grayson thought it sounded a little cheesy at first, but she was so excited to get to be able to dress up after all and go to her last prom. She's a senior. So think about all of the things that senior students who may or may not have an opportunity to walk across the stage to get their diploma. 
So anyway, it's kind of a sad time for them. Once we started getting the porch decorated and cranked up the music, she really started getting into the spirit of it, says one of her parents. Uh, Sprucing up the space uh, with household decor, stars, and festive lighting, the Chapmans prepared the porch for their very own outdoor promenade. With respect for social distancing, just seven family members attended the very last-minute soiree. Grayson, her parents, her two siblings, an uncle, and a cousin. On Saturday night, Grayson's older sister, Mara, who is home from college, and her younger brother, Cray, a sophomore at the same high school, also dressed up in their best formal attire for the porch party. Little cousin Jean Conway also looked quite dapper and was honored as prom king. It wasn't the prom with her friends that she thought she would have, but she had so much fun. We all did. Prom mom, JC, recalled the kids dressed up. We cranked up a speaker and spent two or three hours on the porch. Not surprisingly, my senior one uh, one prom queen, (laughs) she says of her daughter. So this spring may not be uh, going according to plan, but we uh, will try to adapt and celebrate our seniors the best we can. So if you're lamenting all of the things that your senior is missing at the end of this school year, because, well, school has been canceled, you might want to take some advice from, uh, from this family. What a cool idea. Prom on the porch. So she had a great time. Now, you have a few years to worry about that. And hopefully your little five-year-old will be um, will be out of all of this by then. But I, I thought that was a pretty creative idea. Oh, it's it's something that's definitely discussed a lot in my household because, uh, of course, my wife is a high school teacher. Yeah. She has a number of seniors, all of which are very, very concerned, of course, of whether or not they, you know, their prom, their, you know, whether or not they'll get to see each other again. You know all these different things that uh, you know that go into a senior year. Yeah, the um, class of twenty is just the class of twenty is the hmm. class of quarantine. Yeah, yeah, bless their hearts. Well, let's see. A fourteen-year-old has gone viral on TikTok, which is another social media uh, site, for his elaborate meal planning skills, which have already transformed his family kitchen into such dining options as. Um, a hibachi restaurant, and even everyone's favorite dining experience, an in-flight meal. Uh, Derek from Massachusetts has been creating the themed dinners nightly while his sister records and then posts them on TikTok, where they have been widely appreciated. On average, the short clips, which uh, showcase Derek cooking, seating guests, and even wearing a, an inspired uh, T-shirt, um, uh, pull in about 2 million views each. The ideas for the creative meal struck Derek because he felt bad his sister couldn't go on her spring break, so he decided to bring the in-flight dining experience to her with an airplane-themed night. I like to make them laugh, he says. Uh, Life's too serious right now. His guests, which is, of course is his family, have been enjoying the inventive touches. According to Caitlin's TikTok, the family has been having as much fun with the dinners as Derek has had coming up with them. Again, people being creative in how to spend this uh, COVID-19 quarantine time as a family. Huh. And then there's this guy. I'm thinking about taking this one up, and maybe I'll challenge you, James. Okay. A man from, let's see, Cheltenham, England. Being stuck at home didn't stop a British man from running an outdoor marathon. James Campbell is a former professional javelin thrower. He spent his 32nd birthday on Wednesday doing six-meter shuttle from one end of his backyard to the other after promising to run a marathon if one of his uh, Twitter messages received 10,000 retweets. Now, you and I won't have a provision like that because we just, for the love of running and the out-of-doors, will just do this. By the time Campbell completed the marathon in just about five hours, he had raised about 18,000 pounds for British National Health Service to help battle the coronavirus pandemic. The effort labeled the 
A hashtag six-meter garden marathon was live-streamed with former uh, England soccer great Jeff Hurst among the viewers. Neighbors poked their heads over the backyard fence to give him some encouragement. He ran across a patch of grass, some stones, a small patio, and six-meter, 20-feet stretches. He calculated he would have to traverse his yard at least 7,000 times to reach the 42.2 kilometers, that's UK, uh, measurements, or 26.2 miles. What do you think, James? Should we uh, should we take up the challenge? You and me, marathon, backyard? You know, the, the one bad thing about doing this show remotely, Georgine, I don't have access to my cricket sound effect or any sound effects whatsoever, <laughs> because that's typically the response you'd get here, because, yeah, no. Oh, and I forgot you are an indoor pet. I am an indoor pet. And so, I mean, you know, maybe if... Uh, Maybe if you had a treadmill and I had a treadmill, uh, of course, you used to have a treadmill. But... I do have a treadmill at home. Oh, do you? Okay. Saying. Yes. All right. Well, it's yeah. legit. So, it's... in other words, we're not doing it. No, we're not doing it. Oh, I'm so relieved. Yeah. Okay. Well, the United States top infectious disease specialist is getting his own bobblehead. Now, you know you've made it when you have a bobblehead. The creation form, the um, National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum in Milwaukee, featured Dr. Anthony Fauci wearing a suit as he makes a motion showing how the nation needs to flatten the curve in the coronavirus pandemic. The museum in Milwaukee picked Fauci because many people see the plain speaking expert on the coronavirus as a hero right now. Uh, He isn't trying to spin things. He isn't trying to make people happy and tell them what they want to hear. He's actually telling them, you know, how to uh, he sees it as an expert. And I think that's really what we need right now. Well, Fauci said that that's nice if people want to do it, but I have other things to worry about. Fauci's uh, face also appears on socks and a Rochester, New York shop is selling donuts with his face surrounded by white frosting and topped with red, white and blue sprinkles. Uh, there's also an effort to uh, a, a um, petition to get him named the sexiest man alive. I never understood that moniker, but nonetheless, Anthony Fauci is the sexiest man alive. Sklar said the Bobblehead Museum plans to donate $5 for each and every $25 Fauci bobblehead that's sold to the American Hospital Association in support of that group's efforts to get masks and other personal protective equipment or PPEs for healthcare workers. So, wow, an Anthony Fauci bobblehead. You going to get one? You know, I don't really uh, collect the, the bobbleheads. <laughs> no, me neither. Uh, and then there's this. You know, people had wedding plans. There were all kinds of events that have had to be uh, canceled, as we all well know. Well, have you heard of the social distance wedding? Well, there was a wedding celebration. It's become a social sensation online. Joshua and Anastasia Davis they never imagined they'd be having the first dance of their wedding day, on their wedding day, rather, in the middle of a pit meadow street to a song played over several car radios. Friends of the uh, couple from somewhere in uh, B.C., Canada, um, staged a surprise street party after they were forced to adapt their wedding plans due to the many restrictions on gathering put in place by the COVID-19 pandemic. And even though their big day was downgraded from more than 100 guests to fewer than 15 who were appropriately socially distanced. It was still magical, said the happy couple, whose wedding photos of their dance with friends looking on from a social distance have gone viral online. The 27 and 21-year-old, respectively, said that their plans for the April 3rd ceremony, which, by the way, is today, uh, had been planning for six months, began changing suddenly. It was just a mess, like one thing after another, everything continued being thrown at us, and it just um, 
was quite heartbreaking, actually. Well, the couple had arranged for a ceremony at the Langley Golf Course for more than 100 people. They'd invited family and friends, but then safety measures started ramping up a limit uh, to the gatherings, and travel restrictions caused some family members and friends to cancel, and, well, of course, you know the rest. Well, after a small ceremony in the street, Joshua said that they were driven to get their wedding photos taken at Osprey Village at Pitt Meadows, somewhere in that area, where they surpri- were surprised by friends who couldn't attend the ceremony due to rules over large gatherings and social distancing, who were there, you know, at a distance. Uh, they lined uh, the main street, and when they saw us, they just started laying on horns, uh, and they had poppers and so on. They turned their radios on, they played the music, the couple danced the night away or at least for a few minutes. So, you know, again, people are so creative with how they're spending this time social distancing and sheltering in place. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show as we wind our way through some of the lighter side of the news. At the 5 o'clock top of the hour, we'll share with you some of the updated headlines and our interview of the week. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on a fun or maybe lighthearted Friday afternoon. James Blend is joining me as well as we're broadcasting from our remote locations. Uh, it's and it's very remote. I mean, you know, I've got a DVD remote here. I've got a cable remote, uh, a Roku yeah, remote. Yeah, thank, thank, oh, thanks so, for sharing. Sorry, got a lot of remotes. <laughs> Here's one uh, story. One anxious bride-to-be is truly seeing red because her red-headed bridesmaid won't dye her hair or wear a wig for her wedding day duties. Though the bride insists that the woman's naturally bright tresses will clash with the color scheme and completely destroy the wedding photos. Reddit commentators um, have argued that the future missus is simply jealous that the gorgeous bridesmaid will upstage her. Speaking of bridezilla and the... Uh, the trend now to insist that your bridesmaids, you know, sever their right arm in order to make your pictures and your your day uh, perfect. Just another example. Will you dye your hair in order to be a bridesmaid in my wedding or wear a wig? Your thoughts, James? Uh, uh, the, the word bridezilla comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I can't even imagine I love you. I'd love for you to stand up with me for my wedding, but you're going to have to alter yourself in some pretty dramatic ways. Uh. I love you just how you are, but please change. (laughs) Uh, And then there's this. An Ohio man made his sister into a viral star when he made good on a five-year-old threat to bring a tuxedo-clad llama as his plus one to her wedding. Mendel Weinstock, who's 21 and should know better, said that he was on a road trip with his older sister, and some friends about five years ago when his then-single sibling started speculating about the details of her eventual wedding. I said, if you make me come to this wedding, I'm going to bring a llama with me, he told CNN. It was just the first thing that popped into my head. Well, his sister became engaged in October, shortly after the phone call, where she told her brother about the news. She received a text message confirming that he was, in fact, booking a llama for the wedding. When my brother puts his mind to something, he gets it done. So at some point, I had to accept it and decide that it was easier to get in on the joke than to fight it, she said. Well, Mendel Weinstock posted a photo uh, uh, to Reddit of the resulting scene, a tuxedo-clad llama standing next to his unamused sister in her bridal gown. The bride said that she was planning retribution, possibly at her brother's upcoming college graduation. I definitely started planning my revenge, she said. He should sleep with one eye open. Wow. Ooh. I wonder if the uh, llama had to dye its hair 
to uh, fit in yeah. with the wedding. I mean, that's that was going to be my first question. I mean, you know, and, and of course, would the llama object? I mean, <laughs> well, there can you a go. llama object? I mean, they can get you know. How does they, a llama object? They, I'm, I don't know. That's a, I mean, I think that's a really fair question. How how you know? How does a llama object? Yes, yes, it is a fair question. Well, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes something in a baby carriage. Well, in Rapur, India, the pandemic caused by a new virus may have brought the world its, to its knees, but that has not detoured a couple in naming their newborn twins, you guessed it, Corona and COVID. Oh, two my words, word. Yeah. The two words may evoke fear and devastation in the minds of others, but for the Rapur-based couple... They symbolize triumph over hardships as the twins, a boy and a girl, were born during the ongoing coronavirus-enforced nationwide lockdown, which has disrupted normal life. The names, they said, would remind them about all the hardships they conquered amid the lockdown ahead of a successful delivery on the intervening night of March the 26th and 27th at the government hospital. However, the couple said they may change their decision later and rename their kids. Let's all add that to our prayer list. Oh, please. Rename those kids. You don't want to name them after a devastating pandemic that took the lives of millions of people across the globe. That's not going to mess with their heads at all. I was blessed with twins, a boy and a girl, in the early hours of March 27th. We've named them COVID and Corona for now, says the 27-year-old mother. Wow. Have I ever told you the great stories uh, that I have in my family of my great-great-grandfather, Bubonic? <laughs> No, no, you haven't. No, <laughs> you haven't. No, uh, well, someday I'll tell you them. Someday I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, but not today. <laughs> not today, no. Oh, naming children names they have to live with for their, their whole lives. I mean, that's, that's therapy. That's therapy right there. That's, oh, absolutely. I mean, they that's... need to book the appointments now. Yes. Richard Simmons has made a coronavirus comeback on YouTube, uploading workouts for the first time in six years. You know things are bad when Richard Simmons makes an appearance after a long absence. For the first time in six years, reclusive aerobics guru Richard Simmons has made a virtual comeback for his multi-generational 355K followers. Wow. Um, in the age of the global corona pandemic. Three weeks ago, the 71-year-old flamboyant fitness expert began uploading weekly workout videos from the 80s, a heyday, as well as more semi-recent clips to encourage fans confined in quarantine. Now, I think that might just make me want to go out and catch the virus if I were stuck at home, no place to go, and Richard Simmons' videos running one after the other. The revival is due to fans clamoring for him to return and lead them through at-home exercise routines again, the insider told TMZ on Friday. He's back, kind of, for the first time in six years, reclusive uh, aerobics guru Richard Simmons. Get up and move. Three weeks ago, the 71-year-old fitness expert began uploading these uh, things. His team obliged uh, to, the, to post the new videos, um, said that people are really sweating to the oldies. Wow. So you're going to upload those, uh, James? Well, sweating to the virus, really. I mean, you know, that's, wow. Richard sweating Simmons. to the oldies with the virus. Yeah, exactly. I, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I probably will pass on that one. Well, a gang of mountain goats have descended on a town in Wales this week as residents hunker down indoors on lockdown to limit the spread of the coronavirus. Well, these mountain goats, and I'm talking about the kind with the long curved horns, uh, these mountain uh, goats are taking full advantage. The herd has um, 
uh, defied all social distancing orders, marauding into the seaside town of, in North Wales several times in the past weeks. A video producer from Manchester Evening News chronicled the escapades of the uh, furry visitors in photos and videos posted on Twitter. I, for one, he says, welcome our new goat overlords, along with a close-up photo of one visitor sticking his head up through a, bro- uh, a bush um, it's enjoying for lunch. Well, the goats, which normally live on a vast headland near the sea called the Great Orm, uh, have taken advantage of the lack of people and cars to roam into the seaside town. They've been pictured strolling the empty streets, clambering up or, um, uh, stone walls, feasting on leaves of residents, neatly trimmed trees and bushes. There's no one around at the moment because of the lockdown, so they take their chances and go as far as they can, said Stuart, the filmmaker. The United Kingdom remains on lockdown, just like we are, and the goats appear to still be wary of people, according to Stuart, but the longhorn animals are taking their chances. And I think because it's so quiet and there's hardly anyone around to scare them or anything, that they just don't really care. They're eating whatever they can and enjoying themselves. Well, it's good to know at least somebody or something is enjoying itself. There you have it. Well, a uh, Florida man is, um, well, obliging the challenge that we're all facing. And this man has poked fun at the toilet paper frenzy that's gripped the nation in response to the virus. Donald Ryan, owner of an arts and crafts business, who would wonder hung the replica roll of toilet paper um, between two trees in his front yard. I had the pulleys in each tree um, all along because I do Christmas decorating up there and Halloween and Easter and all kinds of things, he said. So he put up a giant roll of toilet paper. I think the whole idea is crazy, the toilet paper phenomenon. He built the replica himself and painted the name of his business on the paper. You know, he hopes to open up again someday. Starting in early March, Americans panicked and started to buy food and supplies in anticipation of a growing Severe pandemic. Some people went so far as to hijack trucks full of toilet paper to get into a fight in stores over it. Everybody loves it, Ryan says, of his display. You got to laugh or you're going to just drive yourself crazy. So I guess that's a better a better option. Now, you may not have been aware, Jimmy, that um, the Olympic torch, even though the Olympic Games have been postponed, has been making its way to its final location in Japan. Uh, And there have been some uh, mishaps along the way, from a jaguar on the loose to an elaborate hoax involving burning underwear. The Olympic torch um, relay has had its fair share of mishaps, COVID-19 being one of them. As uh, Japan postpones the the, uh, relay after the games were uh, delayed over the uh, new coronavirus uh, uh, pandemic, uh, looking back at some of the trials and tribulations of the event, uh, the first run ahead of the Berlin Olympics in 1936, probably the most memorable stunt surrounding the torch relay came in 1956 when an Australian student named Barry Larkin fooled crowds with a homemade torch topped with a burning pair of underpants. Uh, Larkin managed to get his torch, a wooden chair leg, crowned with a metal uh, pudding container uh, holding the, the uh, fiery underwear up the stairs in Sydney's town hall. Well, there have been other mishaps as well as a jaguar on the run. A 17-year-old jaguar named Juma uh, was lined up for photos as the torch passed through uh, that area. There were fried doves. There were heated protests, lightning hiccups, uh, inauspicious starts, all kinds of things. We'll have to start all over again now since the Olympics have been postponed, and we'll have to see what comes up this time around. We've got to take a break. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. We'll bring you up to date on the latest headlines and our interview of the week when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. In this hour, we'll feature our interview of the week with Jonathan Dotson, our good crisis, overcoming moral chaos with the Beatitudes. And we'll start out with a look at some of the day's headlines. Well, the White House Coronavirus Task Force is said to be preparing to announce new guidelines formulated by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that recommend Americans in areas hit hardest by the novel coronavirus wear some type of facial covering while out in public. The change in guidelines signals a major shift in how officials are looking to combat the spread of COVID-19. The U.S. economy lost 701,000 jobs in March, snapping a decade-long record of unemployment growth as strict measures to contain the coronavirus pandemic shuttered businesses and forced Americans to stay home. And the first decline in payroll since September of 2010 and the steepest since March of 2009 during the Great Recession. The unemployment rate jumped to 4.4 percent, up from a half-century low of 3.5 percent in February. A California doctor says that one of his patients is seeing the promising effects of a possible breakthrough treatment using plasma, which they uh, uh, decided to try after several other options had failed. Meanwhile, scientists are suggesting hydroxychloroquine could be the most effective alternative to treat the coronavirus. White House Coronavirus Task Force member Dr. Anthony Fauci on Friday urged caution, uh, telling, uh, saying rather that uh, research is still needed. On the vaccine front, scientists with the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine say that they may have found a potential option. Louisiana is growing as an uh, emerging hotspot. It uh, logged a record 2,726 new coronavirus cases on Thursday. That's a 42% increase from the day before. Officials warn New Orleans area hospitals could soon be overwhelmed, according to a report. And the hospital system set up for the nation's veterans is ill-equipped to handle the coronavirus pandemic, according to a new report from the VA's Office of Inspector General. Mm. A leaked memo indicates um, Amazon was considering uh, going on a public relations offensive against the employee who organized a walkout over the working conditions at the Staten Island warehouse, prompting Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to call the Jeffrey Bezos-led company racist and classist, which I guess isn't surprising. That is the language she speaks. Representative Jason Gooden, a uh, Republican out of Texas, is introducing a bill today targeting China over the coronavirus outbreak that would allow for potential litigation in American courts if the Asian country is found to have manufactured the virus. And scientists are still learning a great deal about COVID-19 and how it spreads, but they've learned it can be transmitted via um, aerosolized feces, according to a new study. We'll tell you more about that in a few moments. A nonprofit organization is using the kitchen of the Michelin-starred restaurant in New York City to help feed needy residents and healthcare workers during the ongoing lockdown due to the virus pandemic. And analysts at UBS uh, say the booking volume for 2021 cruises has gone up 9% in the last 30 days versus the same time last year, despite many cruise ships currently quarantined amid the coronavirus pandemic. Well, there you have it. Well, scientists are still learning to deal with COVID-19 and how it spreads, but they've learned it can be transmitted via, and I'm quoting, aerosolized feces, according to a new study. The research, published by the Association for Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology, notes it can be transmitted via a phenomenon known as toilet plume, placing greater importance that people close the toilet lid 
when flushing. Uh, the studies demonstrate that potentially infectious aerosols may be produced in substantial quantities during flushing. The research wrote, um, aerosolization can continue through multiple flushes to expose subsequent toilet users. Some of the aerosols um, desiccate to become droplet nuclei and remain adrift in the air currents. However, no studies have yet clearly demonstrated or refuted toilet plume-related disease transmission, and the significance of the risk remains largely uncharacterized, end quote. Well, in an interview with uh, Forbes, Purdue University professor of mechanical engineering said there is a very easy way to help prevent the spread of coronavirus, close the lid, and then flush. Now, in a lot of uh, public buildings, of course, there is no lid, so something to think about. Well, as if we didn't have enough to worry about, um, they're telling us not to fall prey of cyber criminals exploiting COVID-19 pandemic. As though things weren't bad enough, now we learn that hackers are using COVID-19 coronavirus crisis to attack individuals and organizations. The FBI has warned of a spike of cybercrime as hackers have increased their activity and they're using people's need for information against them. COVID-19 has a lot of people worried and unsure about the future. They're desperate for updated information, eager to see updates that might tell them more about the pandemic and restrictions. A lot of people are also working remotely and spending more time on computers in general. Hackers are exploiting all of this to commit cyber crimes. A hacker is basically an unauthorized person gaining access to a system or data. Malware is used to give the hacker access to the computer so the hacker can either steal stuff or lock the computer down in an attack typically referred to as ransomware. You pay me, I unlock it. All hacks begin with an initial compromise of the system, and that's where an innocent-looking email comes into play. Email is by far the primary line of attack for hackers. An estimated 9 out of 10 hacks begin from a compromised email. So be careful what you're opening. Whether it's a link to a spam website or a corrupted uh, attachment, hackers will use email as the method and COVID-19 as the clickbait. So... Beware, there are always those who exploit these situations. Governor Jay Inslee has extended the state's stay-home order aimed at curbing the state's outbreak of coronavirus through May the 4th, one month past the original ending date. Governor Inslee said that the data collected on the spread of the novel coronavirus shows that it's still on the rise in Washington state. We unfortunately have yet to see the full weight of this virus in our state. This order is not only justified, it's morally necessary, he said. We are confident in the steps we have taken, but we cannot lose stream in the middle of this fight. As of Thursday, the Washington State Department of Health reported 262 deaths from the coronavirus statewide among 6,585 total cases. May 4th is the soonest that we can possibly achieve our ends to keep our loved ones stay safe, rather, the governor said. Meanwhile, in Oregon, cases of COVID-19, a new strain of coronavirus, began popping up uh, in January. On the 28th, the first case in Oregon was announced. Oregon has had 21 deaths, 826 cases thus far as of today, 16,085 tests, 15,259 of which were negative. Washington has had 282 deaths, 6,585 cases, 79,418 tests um, that were negative. And the United States has now had 6,098 deaths, 245,601 cases, the latest U.S. numbers, and worldwide, 54,368 deaths, 1,033,000 cases. 
Well, the Oregon Department of Education late Monday issued guidelines for the state's public schools to adopt distance learning strategies as officials anticipate Governor Kate Brown's stay-at-home order may extend until the summer. State schools' chief Colt Grill told superintendents he anticipates the strong possibility that our students may not come back to school through, um, uh, through the school doors this academic year. Districts should implement their distance learning plans by April 13th Throughout the Education Department's guidance for local districts, officials urge that plans will be a work in progress as many teachers sail into uncharted territories. And Governor Kate Brown has confirmed she will call a special session on coronavirus, but the timing is unclear. She confirmed in a statement on Thursday that she plans to call lawmakers into a special session to address the health and economic impacts of the virus outbreak. But she offered no specifics on how soon such a session will be held. Once we have sufficient clarity about the federal stimulus, I will call a special session and ask lawmakers to take further action. She said in a statement referring to Congress two trillion dollar aid package passed last week. The governor thanked lawmakers on a special coronavirus committee who met several times to sift through proposals to help Oregonians. They wrapped up their work last week and sent a lengthy list of recommendations to the governor. And the Department of Corrections on Thursday night reported what it had long expected, the first instance of an inmate testing positive for COVID-19. The agency said in a statement that the inmate was housed at the Santiam Correctional Institution, a minimum security prison, um, now referred to by the state as an adult in uh, as adults in custody. The patient is in stable condition and is being treated on site, according to the agency, the positive test was received on Thursday of this week. Uh, even with uh, all of our preventative measures, like the restricting uh, visiting, social distancing, suspending any programs, we knew the first case was inevitable because our institutions are microcosms of our community, said the Corrections Department director. The case is the latest to emerge from local institutions. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll share with you our interview of the week with Jonathan Dodson, our good crisis, overcoming moral chaos with the Beatitudes. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest makes the point that behind every crisis we read about in the news lurks a moral crisis a crisis of goodness. To properly address these issues, Pastor Jonathan Dodson thinks we must, we must be formed as people of moral goodness. Well, in his wise and practical new book, Our Good Crisis, Mr. Dodson, he uh, takes us back to the Beatitudes, examining each teaching in the context of the new morality in our society today and presenting a compelling portrait of the truly good life. Well, Jonathan Dodson is the founding pastor of City Life Church in Austin, Texas, and founder of Gospel-Centered Discipleship. He's the author of several books, including The Unbelievable Gospel, Raised, and Here in Spirit. Uh, he joins us today to talk about his latest book, Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes, published by InterVarsity Press. Jonathan Dotson, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Georgine. It just sounds so good when you talk about the book. <laughs> Well, you ought to read it. It's really what, very well done. <laughs> <laughs> we are currently in a crisis, and I suppose you could argue that we're pretty much in one crisis after another. This one is unique in various ways, uh, but all of us are thinking about the, the nature of crisis. Um, talk about what we're currently facing and the, the crisis that you write about, our good crisis, 
that exposes what we lack when things become very difficult and challenging. Yes, well, <clears throat> it feels as though there's one crisis ever after another these days when you check your news feed or open the newspaper, you know, a sex crisis, sexual crisis, a political crisis, uh, a environmental crisis, and now we have a pandemic crisis on our hands. And uh, what, I, what I argue in the book is that often behind these crises lurks a deeper, more insidious crisis, and that is a crisis of goodness, that the seeds of most crises that exist in the world exist first in us. So, you know, lust drives uh, a sex crisis, power drives a political crisis, uh, things that we all struggle with. The, uh, the pandemic, the COVID-19 crisis, is a little different in that it doesn't have kind of moral agency you know it's um it's a natural crisis but it still is creating an opportunity for goodness mm-hmm. uh an, oppor- an opportunity in which we we, we will kind of see what's in our heart you know whether we cower in fear or uh, rise up in blind faith and tr- you know kind of naive naive trump- triumphalism uh so e- even something that doesn't have kind of maybe a moral weight to it it creates uh, the opportunity to see what's in our hearts and to display the, the, the moral vision of Jesus, the, the goodness that he talks about in the Beatitudes. You write of the Beatitudes that these are clarifying statements from Jesus, and they possess such moral force that they can flatten us. When absorbed, they produce moral ballast that transforms our character, encourages our communities, renews our churches, and blesses our society. While we are in a cultural crisis, we're also in a moment ripe with tremendous opportunity. We can turn the tide in small and big ways by demonstrating the goodness of Jesus' kingdom. So what you're writing about is the opportunity you described just a moment ago that every crisis presents. It not only exposes the condition of our heart, but it also presents an opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's correct. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And we, we definitely see that in bold relief in our current crisis, uh, pandemic crisis. You know, you you've, uh, kind of have extremes of people res- responding, some in kind of uh, a belligerent fear, you know, uh, hunkering down, uh, buying more sanitizer than they need, uh, hoarding TP, hoarding groceries, um, <clears throat> lock, kind of locked down in kind of self-preserving uh, individualistic fear. And then uh, you also have an exception to that. You have people that, you know, I saw a video yesterday of uh, there was a, Amazon delivery guy he walked up to the house and there was a stash of toilet paper and sanitizer out front. And uh, he, w- he was encouraged by the resident to take it with him. And he was just kind of, you know, guffawed at the generosity of that person. Uh, I've, I've uh, seen people kind of here in Austin uh, do great things. The churches are coming together to donate any kind of medical supplies that they have that would be helpful to the medical community here. Uh, there are two doctors in our congregation who didn't have N95 masks, and there were people in our church that had them, and they gave those masks to them. Mm. Um, people are pooling their financial resources to help uh, uh, people in our church that have lost their jobs and are paying their rent. Uh, so there, there is an opportunity to kind of hunker down and look out for number one, but there's also a tremendous opportunity to be what Jesus describes as poor in spirit. Uh, to, to recognize the need of the economically poor from a place of profound humility before God and to be generous with others. 
Now, you draw your reader's attention to the Beatitudes, and we may not just naturally make that connection that when we're in the face of a crisis, this pandemic, which, as you pointed out, is unique in a number of ways, but the new kinds of crises that we face uh, every day uh, that we find in our news feed, the Me Too movement, the Charleston shooting, California fires, a school shooting, a nuclear threat, all of those uh, those kinds of things. What drew your attention to the Beatitudes as a way of responding that not only is um, uh, ministers to the soul of the individual who chooses to follow uh, Jesus' wisdom, but also as a, a beacon to the world that desperately needs to see what does goodness actually look like? Well, it's, you know, it's the preface or the preamble to the greatest moral document in history. So even Richard Dawkins, you know, an atheistic biologist, has said that uh, the Sermon on the Mount was way ahead of its time, and he lauds it for its, uh, its moral integrity. Um, so, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is, is the defining vision of goodness that has influenced Western civilization uh, for centuries and, in fact, the world. So I think it's a tremendous place to start. The Beatitudes, of course, are the uh, kind of preamble. And mm-hmm. I, I personally can't, can't get past the first one without being completely flattened. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, you know. Uh, those who, uh, the poor in spirit kind of have a foundational humility you know, they're people who are meek and they're people who are generous. The, the, the Hebrew word behind it means bowed down. So you could be bowed down by circumstances economically. In the Gospel of Luke, it says, blessed are the poor. Uh, but you can also be bowed down uh, attitudinally or spiritually, uh, poor in spirit, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. I think both are in view here. And, and the way to achieve this kind of foundational humility is not by just thinking of yourself less or comparing yourself to uh, other people, but it, it is in comparing ourselves to the greatness of God. You know, I think of um, every summer I go to Colorado and I spend a few weeks in the Rocky Mountains, and when I walk out the back door of my parents' house and I take in the vista of these 16,000 feet peaks, that are snow-capped and just gorgeous and great, I feel so small. Mm-hmm. And yet, I am lifted up. You know, when we find something greater than ourselves, we have the opportunity to discover humility. And we find that in the greatness, the omnipotence, the omniscience, the glory of God. Something truly greater than ourselves that not only humbles us, but in Christ lifts us up. So... <clears throat> That foundational uh, beatitude, I think, is the gateway into the entire Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so that's kind of why I, I went there. What you're describing is a countercultural perspective on life in general uh, and on oneself more uh, specifically. Um, and, and as you say, this is the sort of the gateway into the other um, other uh, beatitudes. We tend to overlook them. We don't necessarily understand what um, what Jesus meant by them. Maybe the language uh, doesn't resonate with us in the 21st century. So to go deeper, I think, really um, helps us to to reflect on and understand what it is that Jesus is calling us to and how we can reflect that goodness in an age of crisis. I agree. The other beatitude that you focus on is in the uh, fourth verse, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And perhaps that uh, speaks to the hearts of many of us now who are mourning the new normal, the loss of life, the suffering of our, our uh, neighbors and friends. Talk a bit about mourning in an age of distraction. 
Yes, it is a very appropriate beatitude for our present moment. Uh, we have, you know, tons of grief in the world right now with 8,000 lives lost in Spain. Um, you know, the headline I saw this week from Italy was, uh, we carry bodies out day and night. Yes. Uh, there are places in the world in which grief is so intense right now. In the United States, we haven't had that kind of mortality rate, that kind of uh, brush with, you know, high numbers of, of lost lives. But we are experiencing a kind of grief. Um, David Kessler, who wrote the book uh, the five stages of, on the five stages of grief, describes something he calls anticipatory grief. And he suggests that, you know, that gnawing feeling we have at the end of the day as we are shelter in home, as we're in lockdown, that kind of sense of restlessness that we're starting to feel is, in fact, a form of grief, that we are grieving the life we had before the coronavirus, that we are grieving uh, the inability to sit down with a friend at a coffee shop and enjoy a good coffee and a conversation face to face. You know, we're grieving the, the, uh, the, the great times that we would have at our favorite restaurant, you know, uh, catching up with family and friends. That there, all these new limitations uh, are, in fact, uh, something that, that I think should be grieved. Uh, the loss of life as we knew it. We don't know how long it will go on, but it is an occasion for grief. And, of course, we're all sitting here thinking, when will it stop? Will there be mm -hmm. a cure Will there be more? Will we be like China, Italy, Spain? And there, uh, when you let that sink in, that troubles the soul. Uh, th that's where that anticipatory grief comes in. So blessed are those who mourn. Uh, the word can mean flourish or happy, uh, for they shall be comforted. The question then becomes, how do we find comfort? Um, I noticed that when I responded a few weeks to this, a few weeks ago to this, and we were in lockdown, that I kind of jumped over several stages of grief, and I went straight to acceptance. This is the way things are. I didn't grieve. I didn't get angry. But as I, as I kind of got, got with the program and we got online with our services and I, you know, sent out video devotionals and, you know, prayed for those that were really struggling, I found myself deeply restless in the evenings. And I had to kind of get along with the Lord and say, Lord, what is this? And he, and, and, and he showed me that it was a grief, a grief of the way things are going, uh, the limitations, not being able to see my friends, not being able to worship with my church. And so I was able to kind of hand over those, name them and hand them to the Lord. And as I did, I found uh, comfort, that there is a comforter that's greater than the sufferings. Um, he has his na a name. His name is the Holy Spirit. And uh, so I found it very helpful to kind of name the griefs hand them over to the Lord and experience his comfort in, in the sorrow. And in that sense, we do have a promise of comfort in sorrow. Mm. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Jonathan Dodson, author of Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Jonathan Dodson. He is the author of Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes. The book is published by InterVarsity Press, and if you can get your hands on it during this season, I think you will be enriched and blessed and, and find opportunities to be a blessing to others. Now, each of the Beatitudes is preceded by the word, blessed um, are those or are the, what does the word blessed mean in this context? And can you describe the happiness, if that's an appropriate interpretation that um, these Beatitudes are promising? Uh, Yes, the the word blessed, makurios, means happy, but it is a kind of a deep happiness, not Mm -hmm. the superficial happiness that we think of today. Uh, Today we think of happiness is contingent upon circumstances. You know, if I felt like I had a good day, I had a happy day, you know. It's based on, you know, how things went at work or, you know, how things are with friends. But Jesus offers a vision and a promise of deep abiding happiness, joy. Uh, you could even translate it flourishing that transcends the circumstances, whether they're good or bad. So <clears throat> um, each of these Beatitudes is promising this kind of human contentment and joy and peace if we'll live into these Beatitudes. So um, we talked a little bit about blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, what you have there is you have a requirement for that foundational humility we talked about, um, but it's attached to a heavenly promise, um, uh, the the kingdom of heaven. And in the kingdom of heaven, we have a God that's great. We have a a community uh, that's grounded in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are profound resources uh, the greatness of God, the grace of God, the people of God, through which we can cultivate this humility. And if we will, we experience flourishing. You know, proud people, they, they're, they're not happy. Um, they're not uh, content. They're not uh, filled with peace. Humble people are. And uh, But the humility comes, as we've talked about, um, looking at something greater and more gracious than yourself, namely uh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, you have in each of these Beatitudes this kind of punchy moral statement attached to a heavenly promise. And it's that heavenly promise that is breaking into this world to to enable that uh, that virtue and therefore experience the blessed life. In your fourth chapter, you uh, focus on the uh, Beatitude in Matthew 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And that's perhaps one of the Uh, the concepts that we misunderstand most. Your chapter is titled Meekness in an Age of Hubris. Just just define what meek means, uh, what it looks like, and how we um, inherit the earth if we follow this uh, directive to to be meek and the promise that we will be happy, content, and fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Well, the word meek is sometimes translated gentle. Um, Jesus embodies this quality perfectly. Um, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the gentle Savior inviting us to find rest in him. Um, Meekness is is a humility. Uh, You might think of it as as kind of a horizontal humility, whereas the poor in spirit is a vertical Mm -hmm. humility. uh, So it comes out of our, it's expressed in our relationship to other people. So we find ourselves, if we're truly meek, comparing ourselves to others less, whether we would might perhaps uh, compare ourselves to a coworker 
and the level of success they've had, we might look down on them if we've achieved more and, and, and kind of expect them to applause, or we might look up at someone who's done better than us and say, you know, oh, I want to, I want their approval or I want to achieve what they've achieved. But either way, you've got a kind of a strong and, and a weak pride that uh, runs against the grain of this uh, humility, this, this relational humility. And um, the meek, uh, if, if you're going to inherit the world, what do you have to lose? I mean, you know, if you've got everything, you've got the love of God, the grace of God, the person of God dwelling in you, um, you've got the forgiveness of God, the justice of God. The mer- I mean, if you've got all of that, I mean, what, what, what do we have to lose? Like in serving other people, uh, in um, uh, considering others more important than ourselves, you know? So I think that that otherworldly promise there uh, really frees us up uh, to to uh, approach others not from a position of pride but a position of of humility, and um, you know we 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 all like being around humble people. Humble people ask us more questions than we ask them. You know they're great conversationalists, or um, it, they show a keen interest in what's going on in your life. Uh, humble people are looking to serve others. You know uh, we all like to be served. We all love humility. We. <laughs> We just like to be on the receiving end of humility. Yeah. Um, you know, so, uh, but the kingdom, of course, compelled us to be on the giving end uh, of humility. And, um, you know, in the book, I talk a little bit about some of the challenges to that, that, you know, the strong and, and weak pride. There also is a kind of middle pride um, that is popular today. The middle pride is kind of says, um, stand, stand up for yourself. Uh, it's my truth that matters. Um, you do you, uh, <clears throat> and it, what it does is it, it kind of finds uh, significance and meaning inside yourself. So it's not a comparison to others. It's just in being true to whatever you're into it for the moment mm-hmm. uh, or for the season of life. And that is a kind of grossly self-absorbed uh, philosophical term is solipsism. It's It's this kind of you know, gross, uh, as one sociologist describes it, transcendental attention to yourself. Um, and uh, when we're like that, it's very hard to tolerate people that are different or that might disagree with our truth. Um, so we kind of co-opt the truth uh, with our own individualized, uh, kind of self-actualized version of the truth. And uh, we're unwilling to consider and entertain uh, anything that opposes it. And that in itself is a form of pride. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think there's a lot of room for, in my life and all, in our, all of our lives for, for this particular beatitude. Yeah, absolutely. Again, we're talking about the book, Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes. In each of the chapters that, that uh, focuses on one of the Beatitudes, you have a, a segment at the end, Overcoming Your Chaos, in which you encourage your readers to go a bit deeper and not to just become well-informed on the subject of the Beatitudes, but to really consider um, how to apply what Jesus is calling us to uh, in these scriptures. Talk a bit about um, how you see that part of the book being used to help us internalize uh, what God is, is calling us to. Yes, it was important to me in writing a book on you know, virtue and goodness in a secular age to uh, have some way of kind of, okay, how do I do this? And so they're, they're less kind of discussion questions for a community, um, although they can be used like that, 
but they're kind of there's exercises, there's questions for you to kind of take this beatitude and in the presence of God try to uh, conquer your own moral chaos and invite the peace of Christ in its place. So yeah, so so they're structured in a way to kind of provoke contemplation, mm-hmm. maybe get to the bottom of what might be um, preventing that particular virtue or beatitude in your life, and then um, to to cultivate it, you know, to be a person of virtue. And this is something you could do in community for sure, uh, or in a small group or something like that. But but yeah, it was so important to me that that there would be some kind of practical guide to kind of cultivate uh, this the character of Christ as we see in the Beatitudes in our lives. You have a a chapter titled Mercy in an Age of Tolerance, Purity in an Age of Self-Expression, and Peacemaking in an Age of Outrage. And I want to park there as our time is almost up. Uh, We do live in an age in which uh, people are outraged by all kinds of things. And in fact, it's uh, it's rather remarkable to consider what people uh, get exercised about. But the Beatitude is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, beatitude found in the ninth uh, verse of chapter 5 in Matthew? Yes, this was, this was one that was particularly um, challenging uh, and apropos. Uh, I've, I've found over the last five years that um, social media, the news, uh, and even Christians uh, in particular are drawn into this kind of polarization in mm-hmm. which there's a lot of acrimony, there's a lot of hate, there's a lot of name-calling. And so <clears throat> I wanted to think about this because it was it was close to home. Um, and, you know, what, what does it look like to be a peacemaker in an age of outrage? There's really kind of two extremes as I see it. There's a culture of outrage and a culture of fragility. The culture of fragility um, says whatever uh, I disagree with is potentially harmful. So you see this in um, some sociologists, Jonathan Haidt and uh, psychologist uh, Lukianoff have written a book. And they describe in university campuses across the country that students are um, barring lecturers with whom they disagree from entering the Mm -hmm. campus. They are accosting professors with whom they disagree. And what's happening is their world is becoming so fragile that they have mistaken ideas as harmful. Now, that's what the university was formed for. It was formed yeah. to create an atmosphere in which we, there's a mutual exchange uh, and free exchange of differing ideas so that we can be humbled and shaped and, and be created, uh, you know, more, uh, you know, virtuous and, and, and informed people, educated people. Um, but, but the culture of fragility says anything I disagree with is, is uh, harmful. So uh, that's the one end. The other end is the outrage uh, the culture of outrage is anything I, I disagree with. I'm not going to run away from it. I'm just going to let you have it. You know, it's uh, this unbridled uh, anger um, in response to anything we disagree with. And so there's a real opportunity here for Christians to kind of be something that's in the middle there, uh, to be peacemakers, to be people who don't have to be right, culture of outrage, but also don't have to be wrung away and afraid of things that they find uh, different or they dislike, but to be people who... Um, People who in, who enjoy the peace of Christ, therefore, don't have to be right and don't have to fear harmful ideas, but look to dialogue with those who are different. Look to affirm others where they can uh, see truth. Uh, look to kind of recognize the dignity of all people, whatever they believe, 
uh, and to be kind of the aroma of Christ in the marketplace of ideas. Mm, I love that. Well, Jonathan Dodson, this is an excellent book, and I would recommend it to our um, our listeners. In fact, you may want to, if you have a group of people, everybody get the book, and then you can once a week get together and go over <laughs> one of the Beatitudes together, those questions at the uh, at the end, those reflections. Again, the book is called Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. Jonathan Dodson, thank you for your work and for talking with us here today. Thank you, Georgine. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show from a remote location. Um, taking a glimpse at next week, we got a lot of things in play, but I can tell you on Monday we'll talk with Wendy Pope. She's the author of Hidden Potential, Revealing What God Can Do Through You. I think it's going to be a good interview. That's coming up on Monday, among other things. I wanted to close this final segment with some good news and um, maybe inspire you to do something creative as well. A church in Georgia may be uh, online because of the coronavirus um, uh, outbreak, but it hasn't stopped them from getting creative and serving the community. Rachel Reeves of Revolution Church helped deliver more than 500 Chick-fil-A sandwiches to doctors and nurses at two hospitals uh, in the community. Both cities were the church, where the church rather is lo- has locations. I came up with the idea after feeling scared and overwhelmed, she says. I prayed for God to use me in any way he could to help in the situation. She said the idea of a Chick-fil-A point, uh, points came to me and it took off. Our healthcare workers are in the front lines and are at risk every day, leaving their families and homes. Uh, I want them to know how appreciative we are. Well, Reeves, along with others from the church, pooled their points from Chick-fil-A, uh, the app, and on social media gave them to hospital workers. What a true blessing. We kind of just handed the sandwiches and said, send, to, um, send them to your ER, bless them with these sandwiches. And they were so excited uh, to be appreciated like that. She said their church really focused on helping the community. Part of being a revolution church is uh, helping people, she says, Jesus asks us to love each other, and however that looks for you and your city, your community, do that. And then there's this. How easy is it to help your community in a crisis? Just pop your trunk open. North Dallas uh, in Coppell, Texas, Pastor Tim Holland and his wife Abigail were praying for ways to join the coronavirus relief efforts without making anyone sick. Suddenly, the idea came to them, a drive-up drive-out approach that's helping to put food on the table of dozens of homes across the area. We knew when the crisis began that God was preparing our hearts for how we're going to serve our community and church community. And I found myself he uh, uh, kind of in a quandary. Well, like a lot of pastors, he had two competing interests, keeping their staff, volunteers, and church family safe, but also following the directives of the president and local leaders. I thought, how can we do both things at the same time? The pastor remembered, suddenly, God brought the story of Nehemiah to his heart. Like the Old Testament prophet, today's church has to defend the attack of an invisible enemy. But he insisted, we have to keep um, have to keep building the wall. We have to keep meeting the need. Well, that's when they thought about uh, this idea. They filled their trunk with all kinds of things that their community would need. Food and toilet paper, all kinds of um, non-perishable items. They would drive to an area, uh, drive up to the church park and open the trunk. Uh, It was filled with these um, items and people could come and take what they needed. Uh, They found that people, when they learned of the opportunity, did just that. They came and took what they needed. They were socially distanced, but the church clearly was responding to their neighbors. And then there's this. Christians nationwide 
are praying outside hospitals amid the COVID-19 crisis. Christians across the country have gathered outside the hospitals to pray for medical staff and their patients during the novel coronavirus. Now, many gathered outside the hospitals in Albany and Georgia, in uh, Kissimmee, Florida, Alexander City, Alabama, and other cities. In Louisiana, the faithful gathered in front of the parking lot at the uh, General Medical Center at 7 o'clock p.m. when local residents were invited to cover the medical facility and all inside in prayer. The concept uh, is that something sometimes we feel helpless in community. So the people drove up in their cars and literally side by side lined up uh, surrounding the hospital. People were seen through their um, their moon roofs with their hands lifted up in prayer and they bathed that facility in prayer. The town of Huma is located approximately six miles southwest of New Orleans and has a population of 33,000. And those who attended the prayer gathering were instructed to practice social distancing so as not to risk spreading the infection. But they bathed the facility in prayer. Also, there's an opportunity I wanted to draw to your attention, the National Pause for Prayer. It began yesterday, 7 o'clock p.m. local time. People are simply pausing to pray. Now, we can't stand together shoulder to shoulder but we can pray at the same time wherever we happen to be located. Now, you can look it up online. National Pause for Prayer it began yesterday. It continues today, and they're asking people to do the same tomorrow, 7 o'clock p.m. local time, the National Pause for Prayer. I loved a headline that appeared in Christianity Today a couple of days ago that simply read, When God Closes a Church Door, He Opens a Browser Window. More Christians worshiped, prayed, shared scripture online in the past week than ever before as COVID-19 precautions shut down in-person church gatherings across the U.S. and around the globe, unleashing not just a pastor standing behind a podium teaching a congregation, but people of every stripe expressing their faith, encouraging one another, churches taking their services online, Bible studies extending the opportunity, and searches of, of, of about prayer and scriptures and uh, and so on. Um This is what the church has done. And while we lament the fact that we are not gathering together in fellowship, which we enjoy so much when we have the opportunity to be the body of Christ in close proximity to one another, we have an opportunity here that God has fashioned for us in our time. They may have closed the church doors, but God has opened a browser window. So this weekend, if your church is um, live streaming or you have an opportunity For others to attend your services, make a few phone calls, post something on your Facebook page, let people know who might not otherwise attend church or know about uh, what's available, let them know about that resource. Wanted to mention a few other resources as well. KPDQ has established a new page on our kpdq.com page. It's the community events, and there, in response to church cancellations due to the virus and the pandemic, you can find a new church service live streaming page where um, there are broadcasts of local church services. You'll be able to dive into God's Word, worship from home with uh, local live streams. So visit kpdq.com. Encourage others to do the same. You can find a list of local churches with links to their broadcasts. Again, that's kpdq.com. And then also we have Southwest Bible Live at 10 a.m. Sunday mornings where Pastor Scott Gilchrist of Downtown Bible Class invites you to attend Southwest Bible Live Sunday morning at 10 on our a.m. station, True Talk 800. So take advantage of that. And if you're looking for practical ways to guard your feelings and actions during this unsettling time, you can download 10 Ways to Overcome Your Fears and Anxiety. It's free from Steve Arterburn at New Life Live. 
Just go to kpdq.com or our mobile app and enter the keyword overcome. That's kpdq.com or the mobile app, and the resource is available free of charge. Now, we have been called upon to socially distance ourselves from one another, but that is not permission to socially distance ourselves from God. If God is trying to get people's attention, a new Pew poll says he is succeeding. Turns out the coronavirus hasn't just impacted people's lives. It's led to a growing outbreak of faith. So be encouraged. Almost everyone agrees that the pandemic is significantly changing how they act. They don't feel comfortable in crowds. They avoid parties. They're trying to stay away from places like restaurants. But there's another impact as well. People um, are turning to faith in this season. So let's pray for one another. Let's share our faith online or whatever means you have possible. Let's encourage and inspire one another. And let's live like people who have hope in Christ um, because we do have hope in Christ. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for engineering and producing today's program, Clark Hilton for also engineering elements of today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a safe and wonderful weekend. We'll be back here on Monday. I hope you'll join us. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.